I feel in a lot of ways that history is just like travel, at least in what it requires of your mind. You have to basically put yourself in a mind of another culture when you go back in time. You have to try to understand what the people were thinking at that moment, which might be completely different from your own current culture. I mean, even it's it's history in the place that you stand right now, a hundred years ago, it was a foreign land. And so, so trying to understand, you know, 1910 can be not much different um, intellectually than trying to fit in when you travel to India. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with travel writer Jason Cochran, whose newest book, Here Lies America, is about the kinds of tourist attractions that exist because something terrible happened there. Often these places are historical sites like battlefields, and inevitably the history they present has more to do with how the monuments were built and who built them than with what actually happened there. Along the way, Jason and I talk about America's weird relationship with commemorating wars and disasters and death, and how emotions tend to win out over facts at these kind of places. We talk about the bizarre souvenirs you can buy at these sites, and how the stories you hear at these kind of places are never objective accounts of history. We talk about the kinds of stories that don't get told at these places, and how the memories of even recent events, like you see honored at the 9-11 memorial in New York, are somehow less resonant for people who are too young to remember the incident in question. This episode is brought to you by Airtrex, which creates multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check them out at Airtrex.com and use their flight planning tools to dream about your next big journey. But for now, here's Jason Cochran and I talking about just what it is we see when we see historical memorials in America. I start by talking about my memories of how strange it was to visit old Civil War battlefields during my first vagabonding trip across the U.S. 25 years ago. Let's listen in. One thing that reading your book reminded me of was an experience 25 years ago when I traveled America, it was really my first vagabonding trip. I lived out of a van and inevitably a lot of places that I visited, especially in the American South or the American East were civil war sites. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize just how weird we are as Americans or were as Americans about memorializing the civil war. I I just like at, at places like Vicksburg and Gettysburg, there were so many statues. Like sometimes I wondered if, if those parks ever got as many tourists as there were statues commemorating people who lived a hundred years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Well, ironically, you know, they got the tourists because they had the statues, you know, that's one of the things I discovered in my book, Gettysburg, especially it wanted to wipe away this terrible reputation it had as a place where all this death had happened. And so it figured out ways to get people from the various states to come pay tribute to the places where their sons had either died or been wounded. So individual states would put committees together to build memorials on Gettysburg's greens and you know on the hills and all that so that people would come and then see their state's monuments. And one of the people in charge of the transformation of Gettysburg from from you know horrible cesspit to tourist wonderland, he would put signs out that said this is the future location of say Maryland's state you know uh, monument. And all the people from Maryland would be upset that all they got for theirs was like a cardboard sign and they would go home and then beg their state to spend more money so that Gettysburg would end up having a memorial for them. And that's why Gettysburg and so many of these other places are packed with these memorials because it was kind of a competition, again, even after the battle among these various states to prove you know, who was the most penitent. 
Yeah, and and it really shows in places like this. Um, and and so let's rewind a second and just talk about the the premise of your book, which is sort of going to places that memorialize death and war and sorrow and trying to make sense of what these places are telling us and how accurately they convey what happened there. So what? how did this book start? What gave you the idea for this book? Well, originally I, I wanted to go to places where t- just terrible things had happened in general because I thought there would be a sort of this – visual cognitive dissonance of little children eating ice cream cones on graves and souvenirs being sold over, you know, places where hundreds had died. And it, 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 when I started doing it, though, and I hit the ground, I realized that reality was a little bit different. People don't do very interesting things sometimes. When they're at these sites, they're just sort of their brows are wrinkled while they read the signs. They, they listen politely to the rangers, but there's not a lot of uh, you know, color basically. And I realized that the real story was in what we were just talking about. The real story was in the monuments, was in the stuff that was, you know, scattered all around the sites. I think I realized sort of two or three stops into this tour. I was in Andersonville, which was a civil war concentration camp, essentially for union soldiers run by the Confederates in Georgia. And I, you know, Andersonville at the time was just a wooden stockade and the, the soldiers were living on a muddy field. So there's nothing left of the actual camp. So what they've done instead is they put up a little tiny little segment of wooden stockade so you can imagine what it was like. And then there's a couple stone shrines. And all the stone shrines were built years after Andersonville. And I realized the only thing I'm seeing here at Andersonville were things that were placed here by people later. I'm not actually getting the actual site. Um, and I started looking closer at these things that were built, and most of them were built at the beginning of the 1900s, which of course was 50 years after the last shot of the war. And once I started asking that question, why were they built 50 years later? If you know those people who built this probably weren't even alive during the Civil War, that's what led me to realize that every single historic site we go to, civil war or not, has been groomed by somebody, has been stage managed by somebody to make us believe a certain thing about that event. You know, it's, everything is chosen basically to to elicit some sort of uh, response, be it honor, be it sorrow, be it anger. Um, and that's ac- true across the United States. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you write at one point that all these memorials are a kind of propaganda somehow. And actually, you talk about how, like, Ford's Theater was kind of built in the 60s. You know, even though we go there to commemorate the assassination yeah. of Lincoln, it was – it's sort of this staged event. And so I want to – at one point, I want to uh, to address some non-Civil War things. But the Civil War weighs so heavy in this concept that l- let's start there. Yeah, well, as I say in the book, you know, so much about what what's wrong with America today – basically began in the Civil War and Reconstruction. So, yeah, there are a lot of those sites uh, in our landscape, but it also figures very heavily on who we are today, as Charlottesville proved. It feels like there's an extent to which that there's the actual Civil War that happened between 1861 and 1865. And then there's this post-1865 period, this sort of 1870s through the early 19-teens period, when the story of the Civil War was retold through these historical monument type scenarios and this is there was a, a long time when you know a lot of the civil war battles were fought on private land and there was no real concept of memorializing a battlefield and another thing that you come up against again and again is the fact that though there's this idea that history is written by winners 
a lot of these memorials tell the story of a given battle or the the Civil War in general from a very Southern and Confederate and sometimes unsettlingly racist point of view. Yeah. When I was researching this, I realized that history is not always written by the the winners. In fact, in American history, the losers, I think, had the most powerful public relations effort of – all memorial makers in the country. And I'm talking about, like you said, the Civil War monuments. Basically, yeah, it's a bit convoluted. But right after the Civil War ended, Reconstruction began, right? And the North was in charge of just sort of administering the South and making sure everyone stayed in line. Basically, what that created was an underground resistance movement where Southerners were kind of afraid to flip the bird to the Northerners because now they're their overlords, but they didn't really feel like they deserved to to be in this position. They didn't feel like they had truly lost. You know, even Robert E. Lee, uh, right after the Civil War, had plans to replace African-Americans in the South with poor Irish and let them run the farms. They were still sort of stuck in this, how do we make the machine run with a cheap labor problem? And that sort of fomented this long-running you know, uh, resistance to northern language. And it also created sort of a sort of a subtextual language, a code that, that a southerner could speak in, that other southerners knew that you were resisting and northerners wouldn't get it. Uh, for example, you know, the Ladies' Memorial Association's popped up right after the war they were they were responsible for you know uh, reburying the dead and helping uh, veterans you know get medical care and treatment it was sort of uncontroversial work and the women were permitted to undertake it but uh, within about a generation as those women died they morphed into these new kinds of organizations of daughters of this civil war generation who were really ticked off about what they saw their parents as they saw them as destroyed by what had happened. They saw they had lost so much land and so much property from it, and they were angry. And they—that's when the the beginning of the beautiful stories of the old South be, began to happen. You know, the the gorgeous antebellum tales, which of course is all poppycock because it was a slave society. But that's when the the idea of the idyllic old South began to sort of form. The major group was called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. There were many others, and some had you know some were run by men, but the most successful one was the UDC. And the UDC essentially was a group of women set and they they set out to put civil war monuments and memorials across the country. And not just in the south, but especially in the south, but even in the north. And the way they would do it is the most basically the most powerful women in town, meaning the most powerful women with the most powerful husbands, would band together they would uh, they would collect funds. They would hector and petition the local city governments to make sure their monuments were not put in the cemetery where monuments like those usually used to go, but in the town squares, in front of the schools where the children were likely to see how wonderful you know their ancestors were to have fought this battle. Um, the theory, of course, being and this gets into psychology. If if you tell me if you tell me my father was wrong to fight this fight, then that must mean I am wrong. So I must say that we were right to fight this fight. And that's essentially what the remaking of the Civil War began to be in the South. That's where Lost Cause, the, the ideology of the Lost Cause, which was this was a noble endeavor. And we only we only gave up uh, defending states' rights because we were you know, outgunned by the unfair North. That's where that t- started to take root. The UDC, you could order a, uh, one of those Johnny Reb statues from uh, the UDC from a catalog, and they would help you 
raise the funds and then pressure the local governments into putting it wherever they thought it was best. That's where statues like the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville came from. That I don't think that was a UDC monument, but it was that sort of a group effort that ended up putting it there in the most conspicuous places possible where removing them would be an affront, they would think, to the, the Southern cause. And, and that, that sort of persisted to this day. We, ex- we assumed that these things just sort of went up because the town – at the time was sorry to have lost their sons. But in fact, this was the children and the children's children who put this up as sort of an ongoing protest of uh, the culture of the North and how in their mind it had had changed a beautiful society into something that was more crippled and damaged. And they were were angry about it. And that's where they came from. This kind of mythos reminds me in a weird way of of certain anti-capitalist mythologies that you hear in other parts of the world. I mean, this even came into my Civil War education when I was growing up, just the idea that the people of the South had less money, they tended to be farm boys, but they sort of had a romantic connected to the land relationship with America, whereas the North was full of like soulless industrial people who had a lot of money, but less soul. And it's a weird thing. And I think it persists to this day. And I guess, does this story come out of the post-Civil War more than the Civil War itself? No, that was always a popular notion. The South, especially in the Civil War era, really aligned itself, I think, with the uh, with the with the uh, revolutionary heroes, with the, with the George Washingtons of the, the era. Robert E. Lee married had married into a family that had strong connections to George Washington, and a lot of the Southern states had just really, really identified with that Sons of Liberty notion. So, no, I think from the very beginning, the South, um, in the U.S., saw itself as the more romantic sector of the country. Um, that's how they chose to define themselves. And uh, that's also how they, they chose to make their architecture. It was more, it was more neoclassical in the South. Uh, you know, their styles, they were first to adopt the, the newest fashions from Europe. So uh, from the very beginning, I think there was a romanticism that they really wanted to, um, to hold on to and to believe. And I just think it, it, when the Civil War happened and, and the, the economic system crumbled, then it became this sort of Miss Haversham fantasy of what they had, you know, who had lost this clinging to the old wedding dress, you know, from the past. Uh, and it metastasized into something uh, a bit more angry and a bit more sinister than it had been before. Are there that many Revolutionary War monuments? I mean, it seems no. like there's like a, a monopoly of Civil War monuments in the U.S. Well, and, and one of the reasons is what we were just talking about. I mean, one is that a lot of these Southern groups especially would want to preserve – some of the Northerners too. It was such a cataclysm. Now they're estimating 750,000 people were killed um, that, that that of course people would want to preserve it. Um, and, and at the time the Civil War happened, as you were saying – it all happened in people's backyards and through the windows of their farmhouses. There weren't any actual, you know, you don't set aside land and say, let's go have a battle over there. This happened all over the country. It was a, it was a guerrilla war. Um, and they had to figure out very quickly how to preserve the more important places, you know, Gettysburg being one of them, uh, Chickamauga, other ones. And so that's when the idea began to form of having this natu- national system of uh, preserved lands for the most important battles. Originally, it was the military who ran these, and they actually used them to train the military for their next war that would be coming one day. Um, but over time, they evolved uh, and became, eventually handed over to the national park system. Sometimes, even now, you'll find private landowners handing land over to the National Park Service uh, to add to a national park. Or, right? So, so it's still sort of, it still happens that way. Um, but the Civil War was was that important, I think, to American society. The Revolutionary War, um, 
also so much has changed. At the, when the time of the Revolutionary War, there wasn't a great federal system. It was, you know, still, you know, 13 different teams just sort of playing in the same direction. So the, the, it wasn't really easy, I think, to set aside land uh, for these kind of memorial purposes during the Revolutionary period. So you're going to find very little that's left over. I went to a few, um, but they're like places like uh, Guilford uh, Courthouse in North Carolina, places that people aren't going to be very familiar with. And my rule for my book was it has to be something that people know and go to. It has to be have a, a gift shop with souvenirs. It has to have a parking lot. It has to be someplace dad would have taken you in the station wagon when you were a kid on a va- family vacation. Uh, so so most of the Revolutionary War sites did not make the cut. There are a few interesting ones that people are, some people don't even know exist. Um, but for the most part, the Civil War, partly because of the way the system was set up federally and partly because people just had something to prove about who was right and who was wrong, got much more um, – much more um, ownership after it happened. And in Virginia especially, because so many of the battles that happened in Virginia, and from the very beginning of the Civil War, Virginia was like the epicenter. You know, that's where that's where um, John Brown had his raids. It was part of Virginia, not West Virginia then. And Robert E. Lee, of course, was from Virginia. And when he, he left uh, the Union, he went to join Virginia, not the Confederacy. He was That's the way he was thinking it. He had to defend his native land. So Virginia always had this very long history of wanting to distinguish itself from the rest of the United States. Uh, and that's another reason that so many of the Civil War sites got preserved in Virginia. Well, you talk about how th- there was a point in history when wealthier states were in a better position to memorialize their Civil War past. And so like Ohio almost had sort of a memorial competition with Illinois, and both of them had far more memorials at a certain time than southern states like Mississippi and Alabama, which had less money. Yeah, the number of how big the memorial is has nothing to do with how many people died there. In Chickamauga, the northern states that lost relatively few people because they were introducing new guns, they're, they're, they're massive. And the southern states that lost the most people because they were poor farm boys without good ammunition or good weapons, they have tiny little, little uh, memorials because they couldn't, their states couldn't afford to scrap up the funds, especially you know, in the years after the war. This is one of the things that gave me the idea for the book in the very beginning. When I went to Andersonville and I noticed all those monuments on the landscape that I was talking about, um, I went back to the hotel that night. The hotel had been built around the 1890s at the very beginning of when Andersonville was becoming a tourist site for um, – now we're forgetting about it. But back then, it was a major tourist site relating to the Civil War. And I was talking to this kid who was maybe 20 years old. He was working behind the counter at the hotel. And uh, you know, he heard what I was up to just visiting these, uh, these, these places where horrible things had happened. And he said, you know, and it's not even fair. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know – Rhode Island uh, lost so many people because of the specific rules it had about not being able to, I guess, const- get your pay your way out of the war or whatever. And look at its memorial. It's really tiny. And everyone else's is really big. And that – and I was that. oh, yeah. And I went back the next day and I noticed that. And then I asked the ranger there. I said, you know, why is it they were all built in the teens, 20s, and 30s? And I was beginning to form an answer. I knew the answer about the UDC at that point. But he, the ranger told me. Oh, we, we just wanted to honor the uh, soldiers before they were dead. And it was sort of that um, – he was bending the truth. He wasn't telling me the whole story. He wasn't telling me about the reality of how the UDC changed the, the landscape. And that's what made me think that this book was going to be necessary because this is a massive chapter in American history. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that we're still living out today in battling each other over you know, these monuments in the South. How did they get there? Why did they get there? Why do we – why do we as modern people assume that they were always part of the landscape from basically day two after the war ended when they weren't? 
Well, I think one of the reasons why I was really taken aback by all of these Civil War monuments 25 years ago is that this was the early era of sort of the Ken Burns-ish understanding of how the Civil War happened, which yeah. is a lot more folksy, a lot more personal. And this is something you touched on in your book. So how did how did our understanding – well, actually, this is a two-part question, I guess. One is what sort of misinformation do we usually get from these monuments? And two, how has this story changed in the 100 years or so since these monuments started going up to become a little bit less anonymous and a little bit more personal? Well, you're not seeing a lot of Civil War monuments go up these days because a lot of them have been built. It's now a controversial issue. When it does happen, it tends to be led by the South, led, led by people who are sort of sympathetic to the Confederate cause today. Um, but back then, you know, the, 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 mis, the misinformation sort of boils down to honor. Um, how, how, uh, and that was because of the code that the South needed to use to sneak its message past, you know, the, the uh, information guardians of the North in that period. Uh, so there's a lot of statues about valor and honor. There's a lot of coded messaging that, you know, we're not really going to give up. We're still righteous. If you read the inscriptions on these uh, these monuments, a lot of them will say that. Um, and it's really weird to sort of stand in the middle of a battlefield where tens of thousands of people died and then read a monument that says, you know, no, 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 no we don't give up on this. Uh, but it's there if you read the, ins the inscriptions. Um, you know, Americans tend to think more with their memories than about them. So back in, in those days, the, the monuments were just more emotional. Uh, they weren't factual. They very rarely listed the individual names of the dead. Uh, they were more interested in, in, in letting everyone know that everyone died for a noble cause. Uh, and, and there's even somehow even one, one of these statues even made its way into Arlington National Cemetery. The Confederate memorial went up in the in the mid-teens, but it's very odd if you think about it because the Confederacy was essentially aiming to be a separate country, uh, and yet they have now negotiated their way into Arlington, which is essentially the Union's cemetery. Um, but the way they even built it in the teens, you know, 50, 60 years after the war, it's a, it's a, it's a tall column. With some very um, kind of uh, lacrimose, you know, purple uh, engravings of like a mammy holding a baby and a and a faithful manservant following his master off to war together. It's it's creepy, um, and but it's in a, it's then around it are a bunch of uh, Confederate graves. But unlike everywhere else in Arlington, where they're lined up in neat rows, you know, in military style, they're encircling the, this this uh, memorial almost like it's a campfire or an altar. Uh, and they, they're they're basically refusing to align with all the other graves in Arlington. And it's fascinating to think that this, you know, they managed this, to get this even in, you know, so long after the fact. And and no one ever said, hey, don't you, you know, really kind of want to assimilate a little bit more now with us? It's been so long. No one ever questioned it. So I think that the emotional statues worked. People accepted and still accept that the South was a special case and um, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily treason. They weren't necessarily trying to overthrow the government. They just had a difference and they can come right back in and we're going to pretend like nothing ever happened. We're just going to live together. That's, and you can see it in the memorials because, um, because, because they soft pedal uh, the anger, uh, which, which is enormous then and still is enormous now. Well, one thing you talk about is that you have like depictions of African-Americans in these strangely condescending and not particularly accurate situations as faithful servants marching yeah. off to war. Yet there's no real monuments, at least that I know of, to like 
the liberation of African Americans in the United States. There's no commemoration of what actually was at stake during the Civil War. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that, too. I mean, and you find this across the board in American history. And I touch on it. You know, obviously, the book isn't just about the Civil War. It's about other eras, too, throughout every era. You know, the, the marginal person is less likely to get the memorial. That's why if you go to New York and look for a memorial for the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, you're not really going to find one. You're only going to find a plaque. You know, that's why the Haymarket Memorial in Chicago, where, you know, the laborers were, 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 were killed by the police as they were also killing the police, um, they get no memorial to speak of or only recently got one. Because the marginal, the people who aren't the police, aren't the military, were the last ones to get the funding, the last ones to get this, the land set aside for them. Uh, and so when, when, when the slaves were liberated, you know, which they were only liberated halfway because they never fully got all their rights you know, in Reconstruction and afterward, no one was willing to set aside the land for them, especially in the South. And the North, that's not, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't rosy up there. There's a lot of racists who are furious that now these African-Americans are going to come up and take their jobs. So it wasn't like up there they were in love with the, the this new order of things either. So it just never happened, really. And now all you get is piecemeal, little plaque, little this, little that, that, that represent that period in time. Um, and I think another reason is that were they truly liberated? You know, Jim Crow was for, fully established by 1910. Um, you know, and that is a whole new chapter of, uh, of subjugation of American citizens. So um, I, that, you know, that's another thing was there's never really a finish line that we can actually commemorate for African-Americans oh. when it comes to full rights in the country. And I, th I think that's another reason. And now we're getting a lot of individual, uh, like the new lynching memorial that uh, opened up, I think, in Alabama. We're, we're now starting to honor that kind of stuff. But it is a more we're a generic. It's not the site of something that happened. It's more about the concept uh, uh, and, and the practice of lynching that had gone on for so long. Yeah, and that almost feels like a this strange continuation of the Civil War in, in, in a sense, because during Jim Crow, Crow, lynchings were really common. And even as, as late as the 1920s, like an entire part of Tulsa was burned down in what was called sure. a race riot, what, what was basically, you know, white people going to a black neighborhood and, and, and creating mayhem. I'm not sure if there's a monument of that, but so nope. when was this lynching, not a major one? When was this lynching memorial made in Alabama? I think that opened either earlier this year or just last year. It's a beautiful thing. Um, there, there's hanging stones, basically, um, to sim symbolize these giant blocks to symbolize, of course, the practice. And there's a duplicate of each one. And this count, all, every county where a lynching happened is allowed to take the duplicate if they want to put it up in their own hometowns as a, as a monument to what their own people did back generations back. Very few counties have come to claim their stones, but they're all sitting there ready to be taken and made into new memorials all across the country. It feels like this is really about storytelling, isn't it? It's about who's telling the story and which stories are being told. And about which stories get forgotten. I mean, that's a major theme of my book. I mean, in, in a large, large way, my book is sort of about disillusionment. It's about being on the margins of your own country because I start to see uh, uh, what hasn't been memorialized. Like you said, there's no memorial for what happened in Tulsa. You know, there, there people forget even these incredible lynchings that would attract tens of thousands of people in places like Indiana or Dallas. That no memorial for that. Um, so what's not told says a, a much as much about a country as what is told, uh, I find. And, and it says what we want to avert our eyes from. Uh, and it's not just about race. It's also about labor relations and all those other things. Uh, as as, it, as it, the major events tell us about what we want each other to believe about our shared mythology. Well, there's also time as well. I mean, you talk about how you experienced 9-11, 
which is almost 20 years ago, in a very personal way. Like you have actual smells that remind you of what happened in New York that day. Yet there are younger generation of kids who might go to the 9-11 memorial and sort of look at their cell phone, and they, they don't have an emotional connection to that. And it feels like with all of these commemorations of American history, there is that gap where once a certain generation that experienced the Revolutionary War or the Civil War or even that area of Jim Crow lynching is gone, then it becomes a more complicated right of storytelling. Yeah, time and again it happens. Uh, if you go to New York City and go to the corner of Central Park West, you'll see this giant monument on Columbus Circle. That was put up to honor the victims of the main explosion in Havana. And at the time, it was it was funded by people sending in you know pennies, a dollar here and there, to try to build this incredible monument. At the t- so at the time, people were incredibly motivated to build this thing. And now we don't even realize that that's what it's for. You go to the Vietnam Memorial that Maya Lin designed in Washington D.C. in the early 80s when she put that up. You know, we were only, what, eight years, seven years after the fall of Saigon. And so the people would go look for the names of all the people they knew, loved and lost. Now, as that generation slowly leaves us, fewer people are going. And eventually there'll be a point when it's a bunch of names and nobody has any personal attachment to most of them. Uh, and, And that's what happens inevitably to every single monument with time. The Grant's tomb in New York City used to attract a million visitors every single year, more than the Statue of Liberty. And now it's this unloved, very quiet thing uptown. That's already happening with the Ground Zero, the 9-11 memorial, because the kids who were too young to remember it, who have seen worse things in movies, um, aren't moved by it. If you go now, I was afraid to go. I went about a year after it opened, uh, the museum part because I was afraid that it would be triggering in some way, that I would have a hard time. But in fact, I was I was struck by how disengaged so many of the attendees were, especially the kids. A lot of them just sitting there on their, on their phones or whatever while their parents were the ones who were engaged. So you can already see it happening with that. I mean, I, I guess even in our own lifetimes, we can all name things that, that people of a certain generation can say, you remember where you were when, like the Challenger exploding, that kids don't even think is important anymore. And that inevitably it's going to happen with almost everything. And, and most of these major sites were an attempt at the very beginning to try to get people to never let go of it. You know, the, all the people who built those things in Gettysburg were hoping that we would go today like we do. Yeah, I think anytime you have, a, you know, a very interesting or significant historical event that, that eventually moves on, then you're going to have a different way of interpreting it. I mean, I, I live, I'm based in the middle of the country when I'm not traveling and a great museum within driving distance of where I'm sitting now is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, which is a great interpretation of the the inequality and the excellence uh, of baseball during a certain era. But I think there'll be a point at which that becomes such a distant memory, uh, and this is not even a, mor- a war memorial, but there's very few people left that remember before baseball was integrated, right? And so it's going to mm-hmm. be a museum that's very well administered, but it's sort of about a footnote to a sport that isn't necessarily as popular as it used to be. It used to be, (coughs) baseball used to be the American sport, and now it's maybe top three, top five kind of sport. And it's been happening throughout time. You know, Canterbury Tales, what's it about? They're they're on a pilgrimage. They're on a death tourism site to visit the shrine where, where, who was it, Beckett was killed. And who remembers that anymore? I mean, even that fell out of fashion, and that was, you know, famous (laughs) still. So yeah. it's always happening. Yeah, well, even, you know, I, I think of, you write about Forest Lawn in your book, the, the sort of the celebrity Disneyland meets oh, yeah. cemetery in Los Angeles. And, 
you know, I, I, I often go to Père Lachaise when I go to Paris, which is it's mm -hmm. a fascinating cemetery. It's, it's maybe best known in the U.S. for being where Jim Morrison is buried. But mm -hmm. you know, Oscar Chopin, Wilde, too, right? Oscar Wilde, Chopin, Abelard, and Eloise. Um, and it's, it, was, um, it was built in the 19th century um, as sort of a celebrity cemetery. They actually, they actually reinterred corpses there to attract wealthy people to be buried there. Now when you go there, that place, which was brand new and, and was this beautiful city of the dead in the 19th century, is sort of falling apart. And so I think that the shelf life of any of these memorials would seem to be fairly short. Yeah, it is. They all, but again, a through line in my book, though, is them trying desperately to make sure that this doesn't is not forgotten. It doesn't fall apart. You mentioned Forest Lawn, Forest Lawn Memorial Park, the, the original one in Glendale. Well, the guy who set it up was in, just obsessed with making sure it would last. So he he would also buy tourist attractions to go next to all the graves. He bought a, a, a stained glass window of the Last Supper. He bought a painting of Jesus uh, moments before his crucifixion, the size of a like a soccer field, and built a special building for it. He bought all sorts of monuments, uh, lesser monuments and statues from Europe. His reasoning was – here's a child of the Depression. His reasoning was if things ever go south, he can lock the gates and charge admission now to see all these other things he's got in there. So that's why you have a sort of theme park cemetery that exists because he was desperate to not let what happened to Père Lachaise happen at his cemetery. There will always be funds, he would hope, to keep it up. Now it's just this bizarre oddity. Like why would I – there's an art – an actual art gallery that has all sorts of traveling shows in the middle of a cemetery where Jimmy Stewart is. It's very strange. Uh, so it's very – It's people have always been trying, at least in my book, to keep – these things in people's minds. The Revolutionary War Monument in in uh, Brooklyn, because there are very few, but one of them is that giant tall column that's in the middle of Fort Greene Park. Most people don't realize there are about 12,000 bodies or re remains of 12,000 bodies buried underneath that. That thing was built after those bodies had been moved two or three times since the late 1700s uh, in a hope that no one would forget what they had done. They were called the martyrs. They're the people who were put on the prison ships that the British kept in the East River. And they were so full of disease, these ships, that they would just perish right there on board these ships before they were liberated. George Washington refused to allow them to be exchanged for prisoners because he didn't want them to release smallpox upon the population. So they just died by the thousands. And they, after the, the, the uh, war ended, People were finding bones surfacing in the uh, mud on the side of the riverbanks in Brooklyn, and that wouldn't do. So they put them in a little brick shack, and that started to fall apart. So this incredible column was finally built at the beginning of the 1900s in the effort that finally no one's ever going to forget what these amazing martyrs did for this country to help us get started. And, of course, everyone has forgotten what the martyrs were and that there are even bodies buried under this amazing huge Doric column in the middle of Brooklyn. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, when you think about that, I mean, that's that was really made pre, pre the institutionalization of these sites. And then Forest Lawn is an example of sort of the kitchification of the idea of death. But then the you Hollywoodization also, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you also bring in the idea of how many souvenirs are saw, uh, sold at these sites. And, you know, I wrote recently a book about souvenirs. Yeah. And um, I mean, souvenir sales help fund places like the 9-11 Memorial. And you can go to places where, as you point out in your book, there's some pretty unsettling and weird and and completely bizarre souvenirs for sale. So can you sort of help people understand the role that souvenirs play at this site? <laughs> Increasingly, they're playing more of a role because like you said, 
you know, these modern museums now, the federal government doesn't want to give much money for them, so they have to be funded in other ways. At, at 9-11, they have to make their money basically through ticket sales and through donations and through these souvenirs because they're not getting federal funds. Uh, so you're going to have these bizarre fights from people who don't think you should have souvenirs, but then again, don't have another solution for how to keep the place open. Um, in the 9-11, um, down in lower Manhattan, they, they'll have leaves that represent the leaves of the one tree that survived the uh, attacks that stand, still stands there in the middle of the plaza. Um, you'll have lots and lots of T-shirts and jewelry. Um, it seems very odd, and people have been complaining about it for years. But there's no – that's the problem with a modern uh, event like this. There's no right way to mourn it. Before the um, the Ground Zero, and I, I call it Ground Zero as a New Yorker. Some people don't like calling it that, but for some reason, for for months after it happened, we locals called it Ground Zero, so I still do. Um, people were worried that the 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 monument and the fountains that they built in Lower Manhattan would be a, would attract people who commit suicide. That was the concern that the, that people would take a look at these giant um, holes in the ground where the water is pouring and jump in because they'd be so despondent. Uh, and there were a lot of psychologists warned about it in the newspapers. But in fact, what happened when they opened is people started complaining that they weren't they weren't sad enough. People were making out besides the fountains. They were putting their Starbucks coffees on the placards that had people's names on them. So there's no it turns out there's no right way to 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 mourn these places. No one's really sure about how much you should honor. It seems like a lot of these places just sort of do what they can until they're called out for doing the wrong thing and then they stop. Um, in Andersonville, they were selling plastic stockade sets uh, with guns. So you could build your own stockade with prisoners, which is bizarre for a concentration camp, thank you, um, until one of, the, one of the new rangers came in and cleared those away and said, no, we're not going to have guns and you know, fake prisoner camps as toys here. We're, we're going to try to lift it up a little bit. So you'll also find it site-specific. If the ranger decides that's not cool, they take it out again. Was there a John Wilkes Booth bobblehead, or was that something you just made a joke about? <laughs> no, no, no. I would love one, though. But no, there was a Lincoln bobblehead, of course, you know, which is kind of inappropriate, too, kind of when you're talking about the place that he was shot. But yeah, there were Lincoln bobble- bobbleheads. They, they sold pretty well. <laughs> and and, and if, as Ford's Theater is a place that was sort of reconstructed in the 1960s to sort yeah. of mimic the place where Lincoln was shot, that's not uncommon. As you say in your book, there's a lot of places where... You visit Lincoln's cabin, but it was actually built in the 1890s for the purposes of tourism. And how important is accuracy to these places? Does it does it matter that this isn't the real Ford's Theater? Does it does it matter that we're getting sort of a, a strange artificial version of history in these places? No, I think the real question is like, why does it matter to the, the people who go? You know, I, I, I think uh, to me it matters because I'm a provenance guy. You know, history to me is is it. But there are a lot of people who don't care. They feel like they've seen you – know, Fords was built in the 1960s base. They had the facade still, but the middle part was gone um, because – and a lot of people don't realize this either. After the Civil War, no, it didn't, no one wanted to use it as a theater anymore. They converted to offices, and they put so many war records in there that it collapsed and killed a bunch of people. So more people actually died in the collapse of Ford's theater than died in Lincoln assassination. In fact, Lincoln didn't even die in the building. He went across the street. And so we don't even think about all those people who died for him in the, in the, in the collapse of Ford's theater. So when they rebuilt it in the 1960s, uh, they did the best they could to approximate what they thought it would be like based on pictures and, and all that other. Now, is it important? Um, you know, I, I'm not so sure. I, I feel like 
Americans in general would rather rally around an idea than a reality. So it sort of falls in line with the tradition of monuments that we had going back to the UDC, that it elicits an emotion rather than a factual you know, understanding of events. But it happens time and again. Uh, the Appomattox uh, House, where they, where um, Lee surrendered to Grant, uh, sorry, yeah, um, was um, disassembled. It, they were going to move it all around the country and, and put it up in different world spares, but they ran out of money, and the pieces just sat in the front yard of that where the house used to be until they disintegrated or were stolen. So what's there now is a reconstruction. Uh, there's lots of reconstructions all over the country that people don't aren't identified as reconstructions when you go. You really have to ask. Yeah, it's interesting how these places are, are sort of – they end up being less about uh, the facts of the, of the site than the emotions that are, that are generated. You know, you're, you're talking about how more people died when, when Ford's Theater collapsed than on the night that Lincoln was shot. Um, you also bring up natural disasters, which actually you know, result in oftentimes the, the deaths of many, many people. Why are there fewer monuments for those sort of death events than for these war-type or disaster-type death events? We can only theorize. <clears throat> My theory is, in most cases, people just want to get on with life. Both when Chicago burned down and when San Francisco burned down after its quake, plans were put forward to completely remake both cities into you know, beautiful modern designs and promenades and parks, very Parisian. But the people who lived in both cities just didn't want to wait to get all that together. They just wanted to get back on the horse. So usually that's, I think, the case. I mean, of course, it's anyone's guess, and historians will have to wonder why most of these places don't have something. But in those cases, I just think, you know, commerce is everything. People, they don't want to sit back. Already, San Francisco, you know, at the, at the time of the quake, it was the most powerful city on the West Coast. One of the reasons Los Angeles even had a chance to rise is San Francisco had that uh, happen to it and insurers got nervous and people who did business with San Francisco got nervous. And so the West Coast needed another base. And San Francisco wanted to minimize the, the bleed that was going to happen economically as soon as it could. And so it just pretty much like Chicago built everything on the where it used to be. London did it too after the Blitz. You'll still see these uh, strange shaped buildings that are completely modern because everything was built on the plots that were, you know, defined in the medieval period because n no one really wanted to change it wholesale. You just wanted to keep moving forward. I think there's an extent to which that we visit these death sites as kind of an active pilgrimage. And, you know, I was trying to think of death sites that I visited beyond the Civil War ones. And I was thinking, well, I've been to Jack Kerouac's grave in Lowell, Massachusetts. I've been to Walt Whitman's grave in, um, in uh, New Jersey. Uh, and I and I recently went to Chris Cornell's grave, the 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 lead singer mm -hmm. for Soundgarden at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Are these sorts of rituals tied into these more institutionalized death rituals, or are these different events? Is it all part of the same impulse that we have as tourists? In my mind, when we visit someone we love as a celebrity, a writer, we're sort of you know uh, we're recognizing a piece of ourselves. We're connecting a piece of ourselves to. Uh, some greater expression that we enjoyed or we connected with, right? And when, when Judy Garland fans go to see Judy Garland at Hollywood Forever, <clears throat> they're, they're, they, they want to feel like they're close to Judy. And in fact, the people are buying up all of the little niches all around her because they want to be buried next to her. They, people, it's like getting an autograph, except after the fact. I kind of think American history monuments are similar. <clears throat> people want to connect to the mythology of the event that they have been taught or that they, they believe about that event. Um, and that's one of the reasons people like to go to these places. I think sometimes increasingly because our social studies departments are, are flagging so much, people go just to find out what the heck it meant, what it was. Like few people even know what Antietam was all about now. 
Um, but I think by and large, how they, these places rose and became big where people wanted to connect themselves to something larger than themselves and something more meaningful than themselves, which is why having an emotional statue works a lot better than having a statue that is bluntly honest about how everyone really screwed this up and which should never have happened, which is usually what the statue should say. Yeah, you know, even when I was asking that question, it occurs to me that, like, going to Kerouac's grave is sort of a ritual of me reading books when I was 22. And just like Cornell's grave is me listening to music when I was 24, right? So I don't know if there is, is ever a completely objective way of visiting these places. It also makes it real, you know? Um, you can read about something as much as you want. But there's nothing like going to a place, seeing the landscape, and under, to make you understand it better. You know, Johnstown Flood is a good example. It's hard to understand how a town could be wiped away by a flood um, that after a dam broke until you get there and you see the way the valley is shaped and where the, you know, the, the, the lake used to be and where the, how the town bunches up at a curve in the valley. It all makes sense after that. So if you ever hear about an event uh, or read about an event and want to connect to it and understand it better, that's another reason you would want to go to these sites, which, which of course was a sort of the National Park Service's kind of general mandate anyway to sort of connect Americans to their history. Given what you've written about in the book, what kind of advice would you give to travelers and tourists in the U.S. who are coming across these sites either for personal reasons or just because it's the prescribed thing to do when you're in the Gettysburg area? Um, just because it sort of caught me off guard 25 years ago, so I'm really wondering what I would tell my own 23-year-old self. Uh, but given all the research you've done, what should people keep in mind as they interpret America through these monuments it's built to itself? I always want to know, okay, who put this here and why? Who put? Look at the inscriptions, for example, on the statues and the memorials. What year did they go up? Look up. The, usually there's a name of who gave it. Try to figure out why they gave it, when they gave it. It can be really interesting to sort of make a larger picture of the ebbs and flows of how society moved after the event. Um, at, at Antietam, there's a monument to uh, McKinley. McKinley was just a kid back then. But he was um, he was in one of the battles. I forget which one it was, Bloody Angle maybe or the bridge. But he um, he was a, he was a kid who would run across serving hot coffee to the wounded and to the soldiers. And he got a monument for that. And that it seems weird. Why would he have one? Well, because they built one right after he was assassinated. Um, so there's a story to when these things go up and why they go up and what what they wanted you to believe about McKinley. Um, and, and then you go, well, why would they want so much to defend this particular president? And then you have to look at, you know, what was happening in 1901 and 1902, you know, what he stood for, you know, it ties all back into, you know, imperialism and the new direction of America at that time and the Gilded Age. And you start to you just uncover this whole new world of, uh, of understanding the past. I think I feel in a lot of ways that history is just like travel, at least in what it requires of your mind. You have to basically put yourself in the mind of another culture when you go back in time. You have to try to understand what the people were thinking at that moment, which might be completely different from your own current culture. I mean, even if it's, it's history in the place that you stand right now, a hundred years ago, it was a foreign land. And so, so trying to understand, you know, 1910 can be not much different uh, intellectually than trying to fit in when you travel to India. It's, it's, um, it's, it's about empathy and keeping your eyes and ears open to try to understand how things got the way they are, why they are, and, uh, and you know, where they came from. You talk a little bit about a, a sort of statue inflation, like for people like Stonewall Jackson and stuff. So I'm just I'm, – I'm curious. Like as a person is traveling across America and seeing these giant monuments to 
old soldiers who might have 75 other statues around the country, how does one stay open to the subtler stories of American history, where you might be in, in the shadow of this statue, but a much more significant lynching happened within a 10-mile radius? Yeah. How, how yeah, you, you just can't take a face value. You know, Stonewall Jackson's everywhere because he represented something to the people who put those statues up. The, in his case, it was the uh, you know, indefatigability of the South. They weren't going to be beaten down um, and, you know, because he, he just kept going. This guy, he was, you know, like he's, that was how he got his nickname. He stood there like a stone wall. Um, so there was, you should look at, you should wonder when there's a lot of statues of, of a single person and say, okay, well, what did he represent and why do people want to push that forward? Especially if you don't know anything about that person. That's a, that's a tip off that they're really emblematic of something to a subset of people. Um, and then you can start learning about that, that, that subculture. Are there any other lessons that you learned that maybe you didn't know at the beginning of researching this book or other tips like that of realizing that if, if there is statue inflation, it's probably compensating for it? What, what kind of take-homes might you have from this project that, that became this book? I think what I, what I feel the most is um, what isn't represented. You know, I've, and I think it, it could be applied across your entire life. I've always said about um, – journalism, because I was trained as a journalist, that there's no such thing as a lack of bias, that every journalist has a bias no matter what. Just the act of choosing a story to cover shows you how to bias. The act of putting it uh, first on the news or first on the, on the front page of the newspaper shows a bias. And it's the same of history. Um, history has a bias in how what we select to put forward, what we select to honor, what we select to ignore. And then on, after you get past that, how we decide to portray what happened, how we decide to leave out certain people from the representation of that retelling. Um, you just have to dig back into primary sources, into history books, into uh, another great place is to listen to lectures. Um, you get on iTunes U uh, or podcasting to, to learn a little bit more about the actual context of these events. We're not Unfortunately, there's there's a there's a front line of mythology that we're taught from a very early age that you know the bulletin board stuff that you would see when you were a kid in in grade school. That's just a top line, easy to swallow, very basic emotions: right, wrong, black, white, friendship, enemy. Everything is much deeper than that. Everything is gray area, and um, and everything is being manipulated. At least the big stories, uh, to this day, long after they had happened. And they're, you know, obviously they're done that for very important reasons because people feel like they need to rally around things together. And that's why these things are manipulated that way because it gives us teams to play for essentially. And psychologically we need that. Um, but it's great to be aware of that it's happening. No matter which side you fall on, and usually it's only two sides, not three, it's good to know why these things are being put up or even just that they're being put up this certain way. And even if you don't know why, because eventually you might come around to understanding it later on. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Jason Cochran's book, Here Lies America, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futteman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>